First John chapter number five will be the text will be in this morning. First John chapter number five. And then also, if you want to have uh, your copy of the confession, uh, we will be dealing with paragraph three in chapter 14, dealing with saving faith. But I want to look, look just at the first five verses of first John five. Uh, of course, the entirety of this chapter, uh, we are uh, not negating the importance or the value of the rest of it, of course. Uh, but we are emphasizing what the theme of paragraph 3 of chapter 14 of the Confession um, highlights. So let's look together. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This morning, the subject is faith perseveres. Faith perseveres. Now, there is an entire chapter in the confession that deals with the perseverance of the saints. And this is not uh, primarily the emphasis or the focus of this morning's lesson. However, we do see that there is a perseverance that is given and granted to the believer and to those who love God. First John really sets out the reality of who is a believer. And that very first verse says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Uh, we're often accused of denying a whosoever gospel. Um, there's the word whosoever. Uh, we just vary in how a person comes to acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ and is born of God. Uh, so we see that word whosoever. And everyone that loveth him, that begat loveth him, also that is begotten of him. So we see this very, very clear directive as to who the believer is, what the believer is to believe in, where his faith, his or her faith, actually lies. Now, when we think about the realities of what persevering faith really means, we have to keep in mind, again, uh, that we are not holding ourselves in the faith. Uh, we sometimes are tempted to, after we have come to saving faith, uh, we are tempted to believe that, okay, uh, God has saved me, and now he's left it in my hands to keep myself held firmly in his hands. And of course, uh, we would not agree with that. But as we see this narrative in 1 John chapter number 5, uh, really there's a couple of things I want to point out. Now, we're not going to completely expound this text, but John makes this argument. He shows uh, very clearly here uh, that in the very same argument, um, those who love God, uh, those who love him are desirous of doing his commandments. Um, they go hand in hand. Uh, it would be a travesty to actually say, I love God, but I have no desire to follow 
His commandments. Of course, John does not mean that saving faith means that you will obey every single commandment every single moment of every day because then we realize uh, that would be sinless perfection and that just can't, can't be so. But here is the reality here that we see that the connection between those is Jesus Christ. Our love for God and our desire to keep his commandments is bridged between Jesus Christ as this mediator. Uh, it is Christ that we laid hold onto by faith. Uh, there is no saving faith apart from Jesus Christ. And John makes that very clear uh, here in this text. But also notice that verse 2 tells us that there is also not just a love for Christ and a desire to keep his commandments, but there is a love for other children of God. Uh, another uh, remarkable uh, deletion that's left in many Christian circles is that one right there. Okay, I love God. Uh, I want to obey his commandments, but I really don't like other Christians. I don't, I don't really care for other people. I'm, I'm kind of an island unto myself. I would be okay if I just didn't have to talk to anybody else seeing other Christians. I, I just, I, it's, me and, it's me, God, and my faith, right? Um, there ought to be a love for other children of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to be in full agreement on everything. And quite frankly, it doesn't mean that we're going to like uh, every other single Christian that we meet. But there ought to be a love for the brethren. Matter of fact, later on in, in this very book, uh, that's how we know that we have eternal life is love for the brethren. So these are very important characteristics of what it means to have saving faith. Uh, so we are called together in love by faith in Jesus Christ. And it has been said, and this does not originate with me, uh, that there is no love where there is no true doctrine. So our love is a result of our doctrine. Um, that's another accusation going on in churches today is, or another stance that uh, we don't believe so much in doctrine. We just want to love Jesus. Uh, you can't love Jesus without true doctrine. You can't love the brethren without true doctrine. Um, there is no such thing as no doctrine, just give me Jesus. And that's what the contemporary church is modeled after right now is no doctrine, just Jesus. Or someone might make this statement. They would say, you know... Uh, doctrine could make us miss Jesus. Sound true doctrine will never miss Jesus Christ. It'll, it'll never miss him. So that's a desire for people to truly just want the word of God to say what they want it to say. So what is the reason? Verse number three, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This, the reason to love God is to keep his commandments. Uh, we see that both of these loves that are commanded of one um, are taught through the same, through Christ. So if we don't love our neighbor, okay, here's how serious this is. If we don't love our neighbor, we don't love the other children of God, we break God's commandments. So if we don't love the brethren, we're breaking one of God's commandments. We often narrow the commandments down to just those ten Commandments, And of course, just the Mosaic law, if we were to study that, you're talking well over 400 different laws. The Ten Commandments were just one of many. But here's what we see happening. We know that the ability to love is nowhere contained in our flesh. Uh, we do not have the ability to love God or love the brethren in our own flesh. 
Uh, no matter how emotionally, emotionally uh, driven you are, you don't have the capacity to love the way that we're commanded to love in your flesh. That only comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's where this power to do comes from. The ability to keep His commandments comes from the power of the indwelling Spirit, not your will, uh, not your self-motivation, not your stick to not your own perseverance. Persevering is a great quality. Perseverance in a project, in an activity, in a job, it's a wonderful, wonderful character, character trait. But the perseverance that John is writing about is not, in, it's not capable in the flesh. It's to persevere in love, persevere in doctrine, persevere in this saving faith that we have been given. So uh, John here, as he's writing about keeping, keep in mind the commandments of God, and he is requiring things that are not impossible. Uh, sometimes we get the idea that God has given us a series of things that are impossible. I don't believe the commandments are impossible. Uh, the one that always comes to my mind about what seems impossible to me is that husbands are called to love, love their wives as Christ loved the church. That one seems impossible to me. But God would not call us to do these things if they are impossible. Now, the, the, the truth of the matter is they're impossible in the flesh, but they're not impossible by the indwelling spirit. And that's what John is driving here. And again, if we were to study this entire chapter, we would see that there is this reference uh, being made. So those who are converted, those who have been regenerated, uh, those who are in the faith are led by the spirit of God. Uh, that's an important distinction. Uh, there is a, a, a gross uh, misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit today that is continuing to just, it, it's gaining steam like a locomotive on a track. Uh, that being led of the Spirit means we're being led to do something brand new and something that's out of the ordinary. And God led me to do this, and yet we're not loving our brethren the way we should. And we're always looking for the fantastic, but we haven't even mastered loving the brethren yet. And so we break God's commandments when we don't love God and we do not love the brethren. We are led by the Spirit of God. How does the Spirit of God lead us? He leads us by grace. And He leads us by reminding us that we have been delivered from the curse of the law. Uh, John is not reintroducing law-keeping as a means of securing or keeping your faith. He is giving these are the characteristics of someone who already is in possession of saving faith. So notice again, now verse 4, a second reason. A second reason, he says, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Notice this is not a suggestion, this is a declaration. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Not might, not maybe, not under certain conditions. But rather, he says, he who is born of God overcomes the world. To overcome the world, because of our regeneration, we have the strength within us to overcome the darkest of this world. And we have the ability to keep these commandments. We have the ability to love God. We have the ability to love our neighbor. These are all things that are as a result of saving faith. So, but he declares what the strength is. Let's read on. He says, this is the victory. 
I love the word victory in Scripture because it's always associated uh, many, many times. Most times it's associated with God's people getting victory over something. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, depending on the translation you have, the King James adds in italics the word even. That just means the translators put that there. It's, it's, it's meant to modify, clarify the thought. But if you remove that word, it says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, our faith. It is our faith that overcomes the world. It is, it is our faith that gives us the strength to love God, love our neighbors. It's faith. Now, that's, a, that's an example of where maybe the italicized words didn't help. It almost makes it sound as if it's in addition to. But it's this faith. So we have the faith here that is proof. So he declares here whatsoever is born of God. Notice he goes one step further. He uses this, this picture to give us understanding. Uh, he pictures a battle. Uh, he pictures us being in a time of warfare and that we are guaranteed victory. It's perseverance. Guaranteed victory. We've seen over the recent days, even in our world, how quickly something that appeared to be conquered quickly appears to fall and what was established seems to have gone all the way back to where it was to a prior time. What happened? That thing, that force that was keeping that stability in that region was removed. And it's profound. And I think one of, the, one of my daughters said the other night, we really were holding that whole place together. Well, the seeming idea was we were holding it together. We know ultimately God's holding it together. But our faith is not being held and dependent upon our love of God and our love of the brethren. We're being held because we are in possession of the Spirit, which has given us certain victory. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be some lost skirmishes along the way where we're going to lose, but we're not going to lose the entire battle. The Christian life has been described in cliches and after cliches about a mountaintop and valley, mountaintop and valley, mountaintop and valley. I don't know about you, but that's not the way that my spiritual life has been. There's a lot of in-betweens. My whole life has not been a mountaintop or a valley. There's been ones when you feel like you're halfway up, Maybe that's just the way I think. Maybe clinging to the side of the mountain. You're not quite in the valley, but you feel like you're losing. You feel like, wait a minute, this is not going the way I anticipated. This is, I don't know anybody who's just mountaintop valley, mountaintop valley, mountaintop valley. But here's the promise that you have been guaranteed certain victory. Your faith guarantees victory. It's not dependent upon what you do from this point forward. Now, we ought to want to live for God. We ought to want to love God. But it is in no way dependent upon what you do from here on out. Faith and its perseverance is because of the strength that we're given in the Spirit. So what is the instrumental cause? The cause is the hand of God. Faith lays hand or lays hold rather of the hand of God. That's what faith is. I'm laying hold of the hand of God. Not in some sappy emotional way, but I know his hand is directing all things. And I know that he has guaranteed me the victory and I am secure in his hand. 
No one, no thing, no power, present, future, past can remove me out of his hand. That's persevering faith. So he declares two things about this in verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? Notice this is a question. But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Question mark. It's a rhetorical question saying, who possibly could overcome the world other than those that believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? We're going to deal this morning during our Sunday morning service about the, the dignity of Christ and His Sonship. And I can't even begin to tell you how many layers there are to the Sonship of Jesus Christ. When you see the word Son, when you see the word Son of God, you are talking about something that is so immense, so deep, so wide, so rich, that your mind begins to even wonder, can I truly comprehend when he says that this is the Son of God? That's the only people who overcome this world. He declares what true faith is. True faith rests upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God alone. Okay, True saving faith rests upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God alone. The second part of it, is that what follows then is our strength is not a result of our faith, but its faith is an instrument that draws from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Our faith draws from His strength. I am never called to the Christian battle to fend for myself. I am always in the power of the Spirit that gives me the victory. Now, with all that being said, let's look at a paragraph and look at what this says. Now, there's a lot of references today, and like I mentioned each week, we're not going to talk about every one of those references. Primarily, the passage that we dealt with is the one I'm primarily going to deal with today, and we've talked about it already. But notice what it says. This faith, although it be different in degrees and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree, in the least degree of it, different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. That really made me sit up and take notice. Temporary believers. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the what's the next word victory growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ who is both the author and finisher of our faith there are so many highlights that we could point here as to what's being spoken and what's being said here the confession writers of course took their leading their guidance from scripture the inspired word is not the confession of faith. And I'm saying that because I don't ever want us to take the confession as God's inspired word. But I do believe of the confessions that are out there. The confession of faith gives us most clearly what the Bible teaches about these subjects. So this paragraph is coming right behind what we just learned in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. But this is also, this paragraph is very closely related to chapter 17 of the confession, which deals with what's referred to as final perseverance of the saints. 
So remember, there is this faith that perseveres daily. This faith that goes on each and every day, month after month, year after year. That faith, at times, is weak. Sometimes it's strong. Sometimes it's attacked. Sometimes it is flat out left people feeling as if I may not even really be in the faith. But the confession writers also made mention of people who are temporary believers. Now, if you don't see how frightening that thought is, I can't bring you to see the frightening possibility of that. How can a believer and their faith be temporary? It happens more often than you would ever care to know. Temporary faith is a faith that has not truly laid hold on Christ. It's not a faith that's truly secure. It's a faith that is like a flash in the pan. It shows up one day, but when it's persecuted, when it's afflicted, that belief system no longer lays hold to Christ. It flees. Now, sadly, in a lot of our churches, we just declare that as backsliding. And I would, tell, I would submit to you, temporary belief and backslidden is not the same thing. Now, it makes us feel better to think, well, at least they're in the faith. So that if they die, at least they'll die in the faith. There are temporary believers that will not die in the faith. They will die outside of Christ. Even though they may have had a profession of faith. Remember, saving faith is something we're in possession of. It's not something that we can acquire. It's not something that we can gain. But this is different than that final perseverance of the saints. And I'm not going to say much about that chapter till we get there. But true saints will persevere to the end because their faith endures to the end. That's what 1 John 5 verses 4 through 5 is teaching us. And it obtains the final victory. So there's really three quick things I want to give you this morning. First... Faith can be weak or it can be strong. Everybody mentioned it. Let me give you a couple of passages this morning. Matthew chapter 6. And again, most of these are just going to be notated scripture. We're going to read it. Not going to make a lot of statement about it. We're just going to let the scripture stand. You can study it further on your own. Matthew 6 verse 30. We are in Matthew on Wednesday night. So we're coming, we're coming quickly to this. But in chapter 6, chapter 6 of Matthew verse 30. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Question mark. Think about the implications of what Jesus is saying there. Turn over to Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. Matthew 8, verse 10. This is with regard to the centurion's faith. Um, if you've ever read this story, um, this is the only time that I know of Scripture where Jesus is marveled by someone else's faith. <laughs> this, this, this rocks your foundation. Of all the people he could have said this about, this is a kind where Jesus says, I am so marveled by this centurion's faith. Matthew 8.10 When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. It's with reference to the centurion's faith. 
This is powerful truth. Now we see those that are worried. That's what Matthew 6 was teaching about those who are taken up with anxiety and worry, being worried. And isn't God going to give you so much more? Oh, ye of little faith. How often do we worry about the little things in life and the daily provisions? For people who are in the faith, those ought to be no, of no concern to us. Because if God takes care of the, the fields and takes care of the sparrow, how much more is he going to take care of you? And yet here's the centurion who Jesus marvels at his faith. Uh, let's look at Romans 14.1. Romans 14.1. Now, this is in the, uh, it's often referred to as the controversial sections of the Bible. I don't believe it's controversial at all if you study this. But uh, Romans 14 deals with Christian liberty. Uh, there's a word that's a buzzword. Firestorm starter. Liberty. Freedom. This is what I can do. This is what you can't tell me to do. You have no rights. Hear that louder and louder and louder. It's like a nails on a chalkboard for me. If I hear it one more time, I think I'm going to scream. Christian liberty, notice how clearly, and this is again, I, this is hard to do with not giving you the full context, but he says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. And for those who are strong in the faith, if a person who's weaker in the faith comes into you, do not waste your time in disputing over doubtful things that are of little relevance. This goes all the way down to what you will eat in front of them. The context was here that there were Jews and Gentiles and the Jews were still observing some of the things about what meat could be eaten, food offered to idols. And he says, look, if they're weak in the faith, do not give in to doubtful disputations, receive them. Sometimes our faith is going to be weak. Sometimes faith's going to be strong. A congregation like ours, there are people today whose faith right now is so weak, they're not sure they can stand. And there are other people today who feel like my faith is so strong, it's bulletproof. Be careful of pronouncing your faith strong. Because when the affliction comes, that's going to determine whether or not this was temporary belief or real belief. So we see this. So it can be weak or strong, but it also, it might be attacked. Look at Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus giving one of many occasions where he gives them counsel to the disciples. And again, I want you to notice the wording because Jesus's words ought to be carefully examined. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. Now, again, I am not claiming and I'm not saying that you can't trust the, the italicized words. But take those two words out again. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired you. Satan has desired you. Does this sound familiar? An event where Satan goes before God and says, I want, to, I want Job. And let's read. That he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. Wow. Jesus is announcing to Peter, Satan wants you. And he wants to sift you as wheat. But... 
I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, Peter, as often his pattern of life was, determines that his faith is strong enough. And in his own strength, he says, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Wow, Peter is holy and righteous and strong. Yet he doesn't even know what he's saying because he's not ready for either one of those things. He's not ready to go to prison and he's certainly not ready to go to death. Not at this point. After Jesus goes to the cross and after the resurrection, Peter then becomes that man. But when Peter declared this, he was nowhere near ready to even go to prison. Peter wasn't even ready to be inconvenienced because only hours later, He denies he even knows Jesus Christ when he's asked by a young girl if he knows him. Imagine what's happening here. And that's where Jesus announces, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. See, our faith before it's attacked, we often feel as if our faith is strong enough to withstand anything that comes our way. Jesus corrects that and says, Peter, within moments, you're going to deny me three times. Doesn't sound like a man who's having a mountaintop bout of faith, is it? Peter is, in many cases, and some may disagree with this statement, when Peter makes this statement, his faith is at its weakest. We think so highly of ourselves that we even think that we know when our faith is its strongest. We tell God, my faith is strong enough to handle. Bring it on, God. Really. Imagine today, the missionaries in Afghanistan who are being hunted down like dogs. And people here sit stateside And boldly and proudly proclaim, keep the faith, brother. Stand. Oh, I can't believe you're in Afghanistan and you're you're now you're running for your life. What where's your faith? How dare us? Isn't it amazing what life perspective will do to you? Isn't it amazing when you start thinking about and you really get a perspective on what life really is, how different faith really is in our life? Faith will be attacked, as I've said to you. If you're screaming about Christian liberty already, you haven't seen anything yet. If this is bothering you, And bothering me, I really need to check whether my faith is where it needs to be. I'm including myself in that argument. Because faith can be weak and it can be strong, but it's still faith. Secondly, there is such a thing as temporary faith. What is temporary faith? Temporary faith seems genuine. It's one of the reasons why I'm so careful when people say, and they ask me the question, Uh, Can you tell me if I'm saved? Now, a little bit of insight into my background quickly. I used to give a very quick answer to that. 
If you'd ask me that, I'd say, sure, I can tell you. Did you, did you, did you, did you? And the problem was, it was always, did you, did you, did you, did you? And you're good. I pronounced many people over the years, you're saved. The problem is, is faith and belief can be temporary. I've seen temporary belief. I've seen people today that if you ask them if they're in the faith, they'll say, I'm in the faith. They haven't been anywhere near God for years. As a matter of fact, their life was not changed at their conversion. Nothing changed. They prayed a prayer and they left and they never returned. And yet, temporary faith is often and most, most prominently revealed when persecution or hardship arises. Temporary faith is all right if everything's going well. Uh, Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21, uh, this is in the parable of the sower and the seed. Again, we can't give the whole uh, context or everything that's happened here, but he's giving level of hearers. And he's talking about those who are rooted and strong. But you'll notice Matthew 13, verse 20. It says, But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth or endureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word. Uh, please note that. Because of the word. Because of the word. Not just general tribulation. Not just persecution generally. Because of the word, by and by, he is offended. This is one of those passages that's often taken out of context. It's not just general affliction. Not just general persecution. There are people today that think we're being persecuted. We, we don't know any such thing right now. These are people who are persecuted because of the word. What happens? They're offended by the persecution they're receiving because of the word. Their faith, their stand in Christ. That is temporary faith. It endures for a while. And notice, here's what's frightening to me. He hears the words and with joy receives it. You know how many people I've seen over the years or had heard testimony about who received Christ with tears? And as soon as those tears dried up, they were gone. Folks, that's why we try very carefully not to pull on your emotional heartstrings to make you respond to something. It's intentional. It's not because emotion doesn't matter, but I don't want you to confuse emotion with real faith. And I don't want you to confuse emotion with real repentance and belief. And believe me, I've watched every entertainer do this. And that's what I called them, an entertainer. I've watched them walk on the backs of pews. I've watched them do all kinds of things at the front to gain your attention. I've watched them smash things, throw things, weep so that you'll say, oh, I want this faith. 
12.05, they go to their car and they don't even know anything that just happened to them. Temporary faith arises, it's received with joy, and as quick as it arrives, it arrives, it goes. But then finally, there's genuine faith. Now we've already established that genuine faith can be weak or strong. But here's the promise that 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5 gave us. It is of such a strength that is founded and established in Jesus Christ, dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God, that it will endure to the end and will ultimately obtain the victory. Now, if I know that my faith sometimes is going to be weak, my faith is sometimes going to be strong, my faith is going to be attacked, my faith is going to be persecuted, but ultimately I will receive the victory then I know that I have saving faith. This, this chapter of saving faith could very easily precede chapter 17, but the confession writers decided that there needed to be another thing in between, which is what we're going to talk about next week, which is repentance. That'll be another hot-button issue for us. What is repentance? What does it look like? Where does it come from? Why do we repent? But true faith ordinary, ordinarily results in full assurance of salvation. If I'm in possession of saving faith today, I'm in full assurance of my salvation. Now, at times when your faith is weak, that assurance may feel a little bit shaky. But folks, it comes down to believing ourselves or believing God. You realize the Word of God doesn't give us things to consider and ponder and then come to your own thesis, your own conclusion. Every sermon that I preach, I, I, use this, I use this for my own brain. I create a thesis in my mind. What is it that this passage is driving home? Now notice, what is the Scripture's thesis? Not what's my thesis. I've watched all those clown shows too. Here's my thesis. I don't want your thesis. You don't want my thesis. What you need is what is the word of God establishing and pointing the attention? What's being highlighted? What, what, what is the emphasis? What's the, what's the interpretation? The single interpretation of the text. Don't confuse interpretation with application. It's a big difference. I have full assurance, not because I feel like I should have full assurance. I have full assurance because I have that saving faith that has laid hold upon Jesus Christ. So even when my faith is attacked, even when I feel weak, even when I feel strong, my assurance should be the same. There are a number of expressions of what saving faith actually looks like. I'm going to share these with you. If, you. if you want to write them down, you can. This is just something that, that faith, how faith is expressed. First of all, faith believes the Word of God. Okay, faith believes the Word of God. Secondly, faith believes in God. Third, faith embraces the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Okay, embraces the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Faith leads to obedience. Faith leads to obedience. Faith trembles 
at scriptural warnings of judgment to come? Do we even tremble at scripture anymore? Do we tremble at the thought that it says judgment must begin at the house of God? Judgment begins at the house of God? Boy, isn't there, there's, we could park there for a while, couldn't we? Can't wait till God pours out judgment on all these wicked people all over the world. The problem is it says judgment begins at the house of God. Faith accepts Christ as Savior. Seven, faith rests upon Christ alone as the only means of salvation. And then eight, faith relies upon Christ for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Now, there's other ways we could, we could say that. But how many, according to the confession, just look at this quickly, how many types of grace? This is a little bit of a trick question. How many types of grace are there? Is all grace just grace, or is there different types of grace? If you look at the, look at the paragraph, see if you can identify at least two of them. Does anybody see them? They're actually spelled out. Saving grace, I heard that one. Common grace, so we know we've got at least two. All right, so what is saving grace? You don't have to just say it. You don't have to raise your hand. What's saving grace? Grace that saves. <laughs> Very good. Grace that saves. Okay, and, that's, and expounding upon that, that's eternally, right? It's not just grace that saves me from getting hit by a bus. Okay? How many times we use that? Boy, that was my saving grace. I didn't get hit by that bus. That might bleed over into the common grace. Okay, that, that's, now, so what is common grace? The confession writers mention it and they actually, they actually footnote this along with the common grace of whom? Of temporary believers. You realize that even a non-believer is shown a common grace. What's an example of common grace being shown to a temporary believer? Maybe a healing. That's good. Causing it to rain on the just and the unjust. I think of common grace is too that he's not, that we're not all dead. <laughs> common grace that we're not all dead, including, including non-believers, right? Or temporary believers. Anything else? Common grace? For temporary believers, they might see some temporary change in their life. That's good. Try a little harder to be good. Okay. Try a little harder to clean up their act, but it doesn't last. Okay, good observation. Yeah, the temp yeah, common grace extends to temporary believers and non-believers, which goes back to what Dan was saying about reigns on the just and the unjust. It's the idea that the atheistic farmer's still going to have a harvest to bring in from the field. That's common grace. But it's not saving grace. Even though the farmer, the atheist, might say, well, we had a great crop this year by grace. I don't believe in God, but I got a crop by grace. The only one who grants grace of any sort is God. 
Okay, so those are the obvious ones. Okay, the other one, I don't think it actually says it. So we've got saving grace, we have common grace. What do you think the third grace is? Saving grace, common grace, and what else? Think along the principles of weak and strong and enduring till the end. Why do we endure to the end? What do we do in times of weakness? What is it? What type of grace is at work? Sanctifying grace. We're on the right path. We could use that word. Persevering faith. We're in all in the same thing. What is all that? What is, how could we put that under one heading? What would that one heading be? Persevering, sanctifying, strengthening, encouraging, edifying. Let's just use the term sustaining. We often use this, we say this, and it is right theologically. The grace that saves us is the grace that keeps us. Yes, keeps you eternally as saving grace, but also, and sustaining grace, not only in this life, but the life to come. My faith will be sustained throughout all of eternity. Okay? All right. So next week, we will look at chapter 15, which will be dealing with repentance. Uh, I believe the confession spells it out as, and it's important, of repentance unto life and salvation. So if you want to read ahead, uh, we'll primarily be looking at paragraph one next week, uh, which will deal with uh, primarily uh, the elect who are converted later in life, okay, and what the implications of that are. So I hope that'll be a help to us, okay? Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Again, hope these studies and these lessons are helpful and encouraging to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are grateful for a faith that perseveres. A faith that has been given to us that is not temporary, that is not fleeting, but a grace that truly has saved us and a grace that will sustain us. Lord, we do pray for those who maybe we have known, maybe we do know, who maybe fall into that category of temporary belief. May we never grow weary of sharing and preaching the gospel to them, whether they be friends or co-workers, family, whatever the case may be. May we never just make an assumption that someone is just away from the Lord, that they are in the faith, and if they were to die today, they would begin eternity with Christ. Only a holy, sovereign, omniscient God can know the heart of man. May we be very careful in declaring who a child of God is. But may we also be encouraged to know that we can have full assurance of our salvation today and full understanding of what it is to have saving faith. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time of fellowship we have together. Thank you for each one that's here today. Be with those that are away from us, those that are battling illness. And Lord, thank you for what you're doing among this body. We thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. All right, thank you.